0: Hello everyone and welcome to this edition of Studio 1.0. This week was a special week and one of my favorite shoots of the season. He revolutionized the way we listen to music, even if it wasn't entirely legal. Sean Parker co-founded Napster in 1999, then went on to become founding president of Facebook, a ringleader of tech and music celebrities like Mark Zuckerberg, Spotify's Daniel Ek, and Snoop Dogg. We found this amazing photo of them all together. Justin Timberlake, of course, famously portrayed Parker in the movie The Social Network as tech's bad boy, but Parker has since settled down, married, and devoted his career to political activism and philanthropy, donating millions of dollars to support life sciences, global health, and more. Joining me today on Studio 1.0, Napster co-founder, Facebook founding president, and chairman of the Parker Foundation, Sean Parker. And thanks for having us at your pad in L.A.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I want to... Start by talking a little bit about who you are, how you got here. You started coding when you were seven years old. What kind of a kid were you?
1: I think I was generally a pretty good kid, um, up until a certain point when things went a little bit off the rails. What point was that? You know, the, com- the we call it hacking now, which has both positive and negative connotations. But the, you know, this was the computer underground in in the late 1990s. It was a it was a breeding ground for many people who went on to become successful entrepreneurs but at the time we were really interested in computer security and and it had it had a way of sucking you in because there was an element of danger there was an element of um there was an intellectual challenge associated with it and as i became more involved in that world i became less involved in you know my my day-to-day life everything was probably going fine up until about the age of 14 <laughs> when i discovered this world that that um you know and, and thank goodness i did because if i wouldn't have learned about i wouldn't have learned to code i wouldn't have learned about the early internet i wouldn't have built napster so i owe a great debt to that small cabal of people um who were essentially uh, you know, an underground community of cyber criminals, mm-hmm. and at the same time, my parents—it drove my parents crazy. When you
0: were 16, you met another hacker, Sean Fanning, online. You didn't go to college. You moved to Silicon Valley, and you guys built Napster together.
1: It was a great experience for us. Mm-hmm. We had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Little did we know, we—we we, there was criminal liability associated with with you know enabling what they called contributory and vicarious copyright infringement on what was realistically an unprecedented scale. I perhaps blame myself only in that I wasn't a better negotiator and I couldn't help them save themselves. But it's sad to watch the decline of this industry. It didn't necessarily need to happen that way. And, and that, that's a... Why not? Consumers turn to piracy, by and large, when they can't get the product through legitimate channels. So there needed to be a legitimate market offering coming from the record labels and they couldn't get their act together for years to put that in the market. It was frustrating to watch this long deleterious collapse of the indus- of an industry that was producing something that I loved so much. That was never our intention. We never wanted to see that happen.
0: Music sales peaked in 1999 and since then it's been years of decline. You're now on the board of Spotify. Do you think that streaming services, can end end the years of decline that the music industry has been facing
1: I think we've now turned the corner and we're getting back into growth based on what I've seen at Spotify based on what I've seen coming out of Apple it looks like it's bottomed out in terms of you know it for a while Spotify could replace uh, CD sales um, the decline in CD sales and the decline in downloads but not both but
0: how do you convince people to pay for services when there's so much available for free online whether it's YouTube or elsewhere?
1: This question of free versus paid is is a question that's plagued the music industry all the way back to, you know, radio. I would say that the services like Spotify that monetize at a at a really great rate where we see, you know, users coming in to a free channel We see at least a third of those users over time becoming paid customers. There's obviously added value, and that added value is convenience. It's the ability to make a playlist, share playlists with the outside world, organize your music library. It's all of the things we do to help surface music that you wouldn't have otherwise known about.
0: How does Spotify get over its Taylor Swift problem? But it's not just Taylor Swift, Adele and Coldplay how does a company like Spotify get over this issue that artists don't want to give their music away for free? Would Spotify consider offering just a paid tier?
1: So so there's a big difference between artists who these days primarily make their money by touring, by doing ancillary things. They get a certain amount of money from subscription services. Download services aren't doing so well for them these days. They get a little trickle from YouTube, which is really nothing, but the, the branding opportunities, the opportunities to, to stage large-scale tours, because the touring industry is so healthy. That that's the bread and butter for these artists. Now, now, artist management is a different story. I mean, our, artist management. These are these are people who, and many of them are my friends. So I, you know, I, I shouldn't be. You know, you know, the it's a necessary profession. It's a necessary artist would say it's a necessary evil. But artist managers are always trying to figure out how do we extract every last drop of value from from this. I I find it hard to believe that the artists you're mentioning don't want their music to be heard as widely as possible by as many people as possible. I would say their managers would like to extract every last penny from the from from the product which they frankly had no creative role in, in in producing but but you know their job in the ecosystem is to get you know extract every last dime.
0: So you think this is Taylor Swift's manager speaking not Taylor Swift?
1: I think that's an interesting theory. It's very hard to tell when it's the artist speaking or when it's the manager speaking, and we know that from social media. I don't know what she really thinks. We haven't had a chance to sit down and talk about it. Um, I've talked to a lot of other artists whose managers are on a vendetta who love streaming and they just want their music to be heard as widely as possible.
0: You're known as the guy who dropped the from the Facebook. Um, I know you and Mark were very close. Give me a status update on your relationship with Mark. How often do you still talk?
1: Mark and I don't talk nearly as much as we used to. Mm-hmm. There was a period of time where, uh, you know, we continued to consult every day. But, uh, yeah, I mean, g- generally generally speaking, it's a it's a good relationship. There's
0: a scene in the social network where you and Mark Zuckerberg meet for the first time, and what some people mm-hmm. may not know is after that, I believe you go hang out with Travis Kalanick, who's now the CEO of Uber. This was before Uber. Is that yes. true? You guys, you guys met up yeah, and you went to a did. club it, or something?
1: I, I don't know that I went to a club. Actually, actually, Mark I think went out to a club.
0: Tell <laughs> us about you know the Travis Tra- Kalanick of, of two thousand four. Travis
1: hasn't really changed at all. I mean, he, he 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 he's sort of in some ways the perfect CEO of of this company because he enjoys the uh, he enjoys he feeds off of the conflict and the and the and the controversy. He, he's very good at dealing with complex situations where he, you know, he's being attacked from all sides. I think there's, I think there's, I think he, he would, he would thrive as a, as a, as a, you know, wartime leader. I mean, he, he's very good. General Kalanick. uh, Under, under those circumstances. And, uh, you know, I think, I think you know, there's a lot of companies that would have been way too boring for, for Travis.
0: How impressed are you with what Uber has accomplished? Do you think it's worth $62.5 billion?
1: You know, do I think any of these companies are worth uh, the val- their private market valuations? I think it's hard to say. There's a disconnect between private company and public company valuations, and the companies wait too long to go public, uh, and then they don't do so well in the public markets. And there's... Uh, you know, you're seeing, you know, you, the Fidelity write-down, for instance. So there's been a, a number of high-profile write-downs Snapchat,
0: where, Dropbox. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's not clear what any of these things are worth um, until the market, the public market, values them, because in these close-knit uh, private markets, you know, you can you can do various things to engineer the valuation.
0: Do you think a company like Uber or Airbnb, should they be going public sooner?
1: The traditional path would have been to go public sooner. Something happened post-Facebook, and I may have inadvertently played a role in, in, in this occurring, which was the development of this robust secondary market where, where suddenly hedge funds and, and private wealth managers and various you know, sovereign wealth funds and so forth began to invest very heavily in private companies. Um, you
0: started that? You started the secondary markets?
1: I didn't. I didn't. I didn't start everything. I certainly didn't start. Every, I certainly didn't start secondary markets. But but we we encouraged at Facebook a robust secondary market. We were much more open to to having a secondary market, and be, right. in part because we had a longer term vision. And you need to give people an opportunity to take liquidity along the way.
0: What do you think is the biggest threat to Facebook's business?
1: You know, I think Facebook's business is, has so much growth left in it. Mm. Uh, so it, it's really value extraction. It's value that's been stored for a long time, and then there's a lot of very smart people trying to figure out how do we unlock that value. Um, that process is, you know, another ten or twenty years before we, we we start to see we start to see what that looks like.
0: How big a threat do you think Snapchat is to Facebook?
1: There's never been one uh, communication network that dominated everything. They you know they all serve slightly different purposes to to different people. I think. Mark Zuckerberg has done a wonderful job and I applaud his ability to understand which companies genuinely pose a threat and an opportunity you know to to Facebook. The interesting question is how does Snapchat iterate into becoming more of a communication platform that enables, you know, communication that's not necessarily ephemeral.
0: So you think they should work on non-ephemeral communication? I I, I, I just think, you know,
1: there's indication that they're going in that direction. I'm not, not, you know, I don't spend that much time thinking about it.
0: So whether it's Instagram or Oculus or WhatsApp or Messenger or Internet.org, which of those do you see as having the most potential to become the next huge business for Facebook?
1: The interesting question for Facebook is, you know, is that next big thing uh, somewhere else entirely? Is it, is it you know, is it, is it Google X and life sciences and, you know, contact lenses that measure glucose? Is it self-driving cars? Or is it going to be something that's very close to the home, you know, the, the, idea, the core of what Facebook is? Um,
0: Do you think Facebook should move beyond the core?
1: I think that communication is the biggest market in the world. Communication cannot be undervalued. So, so are there a lot of other communication paradigms, and are there a lot of other um, ways of communicating that Facebook could enable? You know, does it make sense for Facebook to buy something like Snapchat? Does it make sense for, for Facebook to, um, you know, expand more into real-time communication, so not just broadcast-based, you know, where you're sharing with a group? It's essentially public. Facebook Messenger is... is really no different from instant messaging which we've had since you know the uh, really the mid 1990s or actually going all the way back to IRC in the early internet. Facebook is very good at understanding the the core communication network apps that they should own mm-hmm. and are there more of those out there? Absolutely. There are there are enormous opportunities left in communication.
0: You mean enormous opportunities left in terms of what Facebook could buy? Huh.
1: Well, in terms of what Facebook could build or buy.
0: So do you think Facebook should consider buying Snapchat again?
1: You know, I, I think it's inter- it'll be interesting to see where Snapchat takes their user base. And a great analogy is when Facebook launched Feed. Feed created a paradigm that's almost too ubiquitous, where every company thinks they need to have a feed. Could Snapchat undergo a similar transition where they move away from having, um, you know, everything's ephemeral, messages are destructive, you know that's a possibility. I don't have a crystal ball and i don't I don't know evan mm-hmm. uh but but i but I wonder um about where they where they could take things
0: Twitter do you think Twitter survives?
1: I think Twitter is a victim of their own success in so many ways. They are a company that had it not been for um the media's infatuation with twitter mm-hmm. uh Twitter never would have built an enormous user base mm-hmm. um But that came at a cost, and the cost was the lack of deep, you know, close-knit community between its users. Mm -hmm. Um, Twitter was never uh, an accurate reflection of your real social network. It it didn't have the same level of intimate interaction. I don't think Twitter would have existed had it not been for its its relationship with celebrity and media. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, I think its relationship with celebrity and media is its biggest weakness.
0: Really? So how does that play out? I mean, does does Twitter survive this, the next wave of I mean, innovation I, in social networking? I,
1: I, I, the, the, the question of does it survive is maybe too too dramatic of a question. I, 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 it's, a, it's a question of do they prosper and do they become you know a much larger company? Um, or do they remain roughly the same size, and, and they become a, um, you know, a, 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 par, a part of our lives in a in a in a in a fairly narrow way, you know? I, I don't think that Twitter goes on to to take market share from from other other players, um, and I think that, but I do think that they will continue to exist.
0: There's a huge debate between privacy versus security and how much Silicon Valley can help with that. And Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Cook have really put a stake in the ground saying, we're not going to help the government spy on our users. Should the tech industry be more accommodating to, what, to the government?
1: The reality of the relationship between um, large industry and government um, you know, should not be underestimated. Of course, there is collaboration. To think that uh, communication companies, network providers, social media uh, companies aren't, you know, cooperating with the federal government in various ways, I think is naive. We're living in a world where enormous economic value comes from from finding connections, like I, I never would have met Mark Zuckerberg if it hadn't been for the internet. I never would have met Sean Fanning. I, we met in a underground chat room. We we met in a place that would probably be monitored right now by the government because they're you know they're very suspicious of hackers. So, but had it not been for that ability to communicate and that freedom to communicate, you know, we never would have met each other. None of this would have happened. We mm-hmm. wouldn't be having this conversation. I, I think that the that you know. Th- by that same token the the more accessible and available these communication technologies are and the more accessible and available encryption technologies are you know these these tools are going to be used to foment necessary revolutions against dictators and they will be used by terrorists you know by the by the the, the nine crazies who never otherwise would have met to organize into a homegrown terrorist cell. Every uh, major technological platform, every major shift that happens in the way we communicate, you know, is a double-edged sword.
0: So uh, what what's your current act? What are you spending most of your time on right now?
1: It's about 50% uh, venture investing, uh, you know, startups, you know, many of which have been ongoing for several years, and about 50% philanthropic endeavors, most of which is life sciences related.
0: What did you think about the Chan Zuckerberg initiative? It's been unexpectedly controversial, criticized for not giving to charity, characterizing it as an LLC. Was that unfair?
1: I don't think anything Mark does should uh, we shouldn't expect it to be anything other than controversial. His intentions are entirely altruistic. It's very hard to criticize someone who who's saying they're going to give away the vast vast majority, ninety nine percent of their of their fortune. Um, I think that the goal of saying it the way he said it and laying it out the way he explained it was to spark controversy. The media cycle is dominated by Donald Trump and terrorism and, you know, a a lot of really scary things. I think Mark felt an obligation to create a conversation um, around uh, the role of someone who has vast resources uh, to try to reshape the world. Mm-hmm. And I think he succeeded in doing that.
0: You founded the Parker Foundation. You're giving away $600 million to life sciences, global health, civic engagement. How has your own strategy evolved?
1: The, the Parker Foundation is, is doing things that we feel extremely passionate about that we feel need to get done in the world and the reason you're seeing so much of of this kind of you know new um hacker style philanthropy um, is because this group of people who you know they made their money by being disruptive they made their money by being unconventional there's a desire uh you know to see the same type of impact that they've had in their business career which has been you know, if you look at Uber, for instance, it's been massively disruptive. How how does one find opportunities that are equally disruptive um, in the in the philanthropic world, uh, but they're but they're you know they the the type of disruption that has to happen if these entrenched social problems are going to be addressed.
0: So you're giving money to advance science. You're focusing on allergies, cancer. Huh. What do you think that you can do differently than traditional venture capitalists?
1: I think philanthropy can get ahead of venture capital. So venture venture capital, when it's done correctly, happens at a time when a business is ready for commercialization. It's not there to fund basic science. And I think there's this middle ground where, for instance, cancer immunotherapy. If you're gonna fund immunotherapy, um, you're gonna be taking money away from existing labs and existing researchers that have been built up over time and there's a there's a there's a hesitation there. The breakthroughs have happened very quickly, but they've been driven by private philanthropy because governments have been too slow um, to recognize that a technology is ready for you know you know investment mm-hmm. and, and whether that's f- philanthropic investment or venture investment.
0: Any crazy areas in, in biotech that you're, you're you're thinking about funding that we don't know about yet?
1: I think pharma has done a really poor job of understanding um, where past drugs that have m- been, you know, demonstrated safe in phase one and phase two clinical trials, um, you know, could have been approved mm-hmm. in a much narrower uh, indication. But it may mean that you know you need access to a drug that only 300 other people need access to. Mm-hmm. You know, we we don't have a regulatory framework today mm-hmm. that's very good at getting those drugs to market.
0: So, what's next for Sean Parker?
1: I mean, I, th- I think life sciences is, is the single most interesting area of exploration. It's it it is to the world today what social media was to me in 2002, three and four. The ability to, you know, getting to lab on chip. Uh, in so many cases where it's easy for a grad student to do something that someone would have spent 30 years of their life trying to do previously. Mm -hmm. But I do think that cost reductions, um, uh, because of uh, new technology leading to faster and faster progress, um, are an enormous opportunity. I think the fundamental question of the 21st century is, how do we make sure that the technological innovations coming out of life sciences are available to everyone
0: after the interview parker was kind enough to give us a tour you can check out the video at bloomberg.com and here are a few tidbits
1: so this is the brody house <clears throat> built in 1948 francis brody was a major art collector of largely post-war art this is a new thing for me i i haven't owned many worldly possessions. In many ways, it's it's therapeutic because I spend all my time uh, dealing with code. But this was the first place where we really made it our home. Well, two-thirds of the property borders the Playboy Hang Mansion.
0: Hang on, you live next to the Playboy Mansion?
1: Yeah, and we have a tunnel underneath that leads <gasps> into the Playboy Mansion that they don't know about. Uh, yeah.
0: uh, what's it like living next to the Playboy Mansion?
1: It, it's ac- It's actually completely normal. <laughs> and when winter, at uh, turn two, we had her birthday party at the Playboy Mansion, if you can believe it. Really? Um, so your be- daughter's be- birthday because they have, was you know, at ha- the
0: Playboy Mansion? They
1: have a pri- I, I know that sounds salacious, but they have a private zoo with a huge number of monkeys and exotic animals.
0: That sounds like quite a birthday party for, I mean, for I
1: mean, a the, 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 the kids loved it. Yeah, yeah. So my experience with the Playboy Mansion is very wholesome.
0: He's also very politically active. He's literally met with hundreds of Congress people. He's backed the Voting Awareness at brigade. And he also shared his thoughts with us about this election. So, I know you're very active in politics. You've met with how many Congress people?
1: I don't know. I don't know. Hundreds? I met with a lot of people who are interested in, uh, in, the, in sort of the future of democracy and how we create a more inclusive democratic system that's more representative.
0: What's your take of a guy like Donald Trump?
1: That's a conversation being had by, by practically every American over dinner, every night. And 20 times a day, this nomination process has deteriorated into such a circus. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the things that are, that are being said are, are, you know, have the potential to be very dangerous. But it's clear that there's a segment of the population in the United States, and they're not necessarily Republicans or Democrats, but there's a segment of the population that uh, is motivated by these nativist, racist, um, and in some cases, borderline fascist ideas, um, and and that's a, that's a scary thing because it's something we haven't really seen since McCarthyism or since the sort of Jim Crow era, and I guess my worry is not about one candidate or another; it's that we've come so far and we're now becoming completely desensitized to hearing things that are you know forget about being politically correct we're hearing things that are just hateful and and um and uh and and i think they i think they i think they i think they demean the political process mm-hmm.
0: what do you think of hillary
1: i'm 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 publicly you know uh you know, known as a Hillary supporter. I, I, you know, secretly, I'm, I'm, I'm wishing for the Dole Kemp ticket. You know, like the most boring possible ticket of all. You're publicly supportive of her, but
0: we, privately, is we, she we know, not living I, up
1: to your? No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. No, she's Hillary's great. I, I'm just what I'm saying is I, I wish, I wish we had a more civil process. That's why I'm trying to, you know, build organizations that can influence the process without having a an agenda, which is some kind of corporate agenda or some kind of selfish agenda.
0: Sean Parker, thank you so much for joining us today on Studio 1.0. Thank you for having us at your fabulous house. It's been great to have you. Thank you. Now in more recent news, Sean Parker is backing a new startup. According to Variety, it's called Screening Room. It will offer anti-piracy technology that could help studios offer new releases at home the same day they hit theaters. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of Studio 1.0. I want to give a special shout out to my producer, Candy Cheng and editor, Aaron Black, who spent hours at Parker's home to make this episode happen. Coming up later this season, Showtime Network CEO David Nevins, Mastery Warrior, U.S. CEO of the Chinese electric car company NextEV, and Google Ventures CEO Bill Maris, along with the former head of the National Security Agency, General Keith Alexander. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at Emily Chang TV and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. This is Studio 1.0.